0: Welcome to the All the Hats We Wear podcast. How many hats do you wear in your busy life? I believe that if you want a joyful, productive, and fulfilling life, you need a system for managing all of those hats. I'm Scott Snow, and I'm your productivity coach and the host of this show. You're meant to do great things, and this podcast will teach you the skills you need to start doing them. Today's guest will help you recapture the childlike wonder you once had. This is episode number 104, and it's titled A Kid in a Candy Store Approach to Life. Kevin McGarrigal is a director, designer, and educator. He has worked on over 150 productions. This work has been viewed internationally and mentioned in Opera News, Boston Globe, Worcester Magazine, Telegram and Gazette, and many others. Kevin has worked on over 50 premier productions from Off-Broadway, the Farm New Works Festival, Black Lives Matter, and the Clark University New Works Festival. His work includes plays, opera, ballet, musicals, and installation. Kevin is a professor at Clark University and production manager at Chamber Theater. Kevin, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, the musicals you direct are known for being very innovative, and you have a knack for getting your uh, own stamp on things, that's for sure. So what's your process for coming up with a fresh vision uh, for a show?
1: Sure. Um, So I guess for me, it's it's about finding things that tickle that like joy muscle, right? It's when I see something and it's like, oh, this is going to sparkle and this is going to bring me joy. And nine times out of 10, it's me thinking back to something in my childhood that was interesting to me that, that sort of like captured my imagination then. And it's taking whatever skills that I've developed now and looking back at it and sort of like spinning it around and reflecting on it and trying to have sort of that like new childlike perspective while also putting formal analysis on it and sort of all of those those production elements that I've, I've spent a while working on.
0: Hmm. Well, we've played uh, two shows together. You were the director and I was the drummer for the uh, orchestral pit. And uh, the first one was Newsies, and that's a high energy musical about newspaper delivery kids who go on strike in New York City in 1899. So how did you approach the amazing dance and movement with the large scaffolding structures uh, that were moved around in that tiny little stage?
1: <laughs> so for me um so like thinking back to the like childhood moment that sparked for me is I loved having a scooter as a kid and that like once I got that scooter it meant so many things to me because it meant one I actually delivered my papers on the scooter right so like papers and news like I had my little bag and I went down the street and I brought it to all my neighbors um but the scooter meant freedom for me there was this sense of like I could get to my friend's house and it was fun to do that So a lot of looking at the Newsies script and what Newsies meant was they were looking for freedom, right? They were looking for their voice. They were looking for independence, but they're still kids, right? So there's still this sense of like fun and joy that has to come with not only them figuring both of those those sides of the equation out. So I wanted to just make everything a scooter, right? So there was this sense I wanted everything to move and to break and to spin and to flip and to wheelie. And I just made sure that every prop we had had wheels on it. And it was sort of like, Most of my rehearsal process started for me as I would get there, you know, I would try to work with an empty space. I would get the script, I would sort of read it through. I would, I like to squint at stuff is sort of what I call it, where I don't want all of the details right away. I just kind of want the general feeling of what a scene is for me. And then I would literally just jump on the thing that would roll around and I would spin in circles and I would kick myself across the room and just sort of let that like childhood play, come up with some big gestures and ideas. And then I sort of go back to the script and I say, okay, where does this gesture fit? Where does this idea fit? And then you sort of let the two begin conversation. And then the exciting moment comes as you sort of invite cast members to play as well. And they will give you so many great ideas. You sort of give them the big rules of the playground and then give them all the toys. And then Mm -hmm. they're going to come up with all the really interesting stuff. And I always feel like my job as a director is to just put those Lego pieces in the right spot. Yep. And so, like, oh, this is a great idea, but we need to wait for it to be a little later. Ooh, that's a great idea. It just needs to go slower and sort of like seeing the big picture um, and, and sort of linking together all those those thoughts.
0: I love that. I am very interested in uh, corporate leadership, and, and it seems like your approach is the exact opposite, whereas a lot of times in corporate literature, it's more about defining the problem and what's the problem to solve. And you're starting with that spark and that uh, emotional connection and then layering on from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Which isn't to say that I don't think, for me, the problems show up later in the process. Um, And one of like the great, like the most important things I learned as a director was like the obstacle is the way. So whenever I bump into something that is particularly difficult, the normal instinct is to step back from it and just try to solve it from like a simplistic, logical idea. But all of the good stuff happens when you lean into what is difficult. Um, So when you look at a set piece and you're like okay this thing is not working I just can't get it on and off rather than avoiding it or cutting the set piece it's like leaning into what is truthful about it and letting that resonate in the space and really using the problems to inform your work and to spend time in them because I was drawn to this idea for some reason right something drew us to the set piece something drew us to this moment we don't want to back away from it we have to sort of like lean into it and spend as much time with the truth of the problem as possible because I think there is some beauty in tension, especially in theater, right? There has to be some sort of tension on stage. And if we try to avoid it or gloss over, it, it doesn't always work. So I think our process has to embrace that tension. So that way we can share it with the audience members as well too.
0: How often are you revisiting that spark that you have with the project throughout the uh, production?
1: Um, every second that I can, uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, if I'm one of like, it's, it's always gotta be this spark. And one of the sort of like, when I was an early director, I, I w- was reading this book, I forget who I think it was Anne Bogart who put it together. And she was saying if you're sitting in the audience and at any point, if your attention wanders, that means you're bored and something's wrong. So just mm. stand up and change something. So early as a director, I noticed any moment when I wasn't feeling that child life like spark, get up and fix it. Right. And I I didn't know what the answer was gonna be. I wouldn't even know what's wrong. I just know it's not sparkling in this moment. So I need to fix that, right? And I sort of need to lean in. um, And you'll get those cues from your actors. You'll get those cues from yourself. You'll get those cues from your pit. And when you see that someone is not like drawn in by that sparkle, it's just like stop and reevaluate. So for me, it's constant. Um, And I always, I can tell when I've stepped away from it and that sort of, I know when my work is not gonna be good.
0: So you're kind of like a real life Willy Wonka.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'm a kid in a candy (laughs) store, absolutely.
0: Love that. The second show we did was Assassins, and that was just recently at Clark University. And that's a really unique musical by the late Stephen Sondheim that focused on nine misfit men and women who attempted to assassinate American presidents throughout the history of our country. So why did you choose that show and what were some of the challenges and joys of staging it?
1: Sure, Um, so there was sort of a lot going on as to why we picked that show. I think part of it is the location that we were doing it and sort of like where we were in terms of like where what we were doing at Clark University. So I I teach at Clark University and we just recently went through COVID like everyone did. And there was this big sense of theater having to step away from theater and trying to do all these things that weren't theater, theater over Zoom, readings outside. It was all the stuff that wasn't the art that we all fell in love with. And on top of that, we had also moved, we were having our theater redone, so we were outside of our space, and there was just this sense of coming home that was really important to me, and that was, like, the top of my mind, is this sense of, like, okay, we are coming back to this theater that we love, we're coming back to this magical space, and one of the thoughts I always think about is, like, through the pandemic, we were taught that if you are in the same space as someone else, that means death right? The closer you get, the more people you put in the room, that means you're going to die, right? And that's been like drilled into our heads over and over again. And theater is the exact opposite of that, right? We want to get as many people in the same room and that should be life, right? It should be this thing that like, that sparks us. So that was my like hopeful look at it. Um, One of the things we're always trying to do is to then twist that thought and that idea, because that, that principle was important to me. And 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 working with a lot of theaters that are trying to come back from COVID or didn't quite survive COVID, we're given this opportunity to return to theater and to do things differently because we had this sort of like hard reset. So it was really important for me that we didn't take our homecoming for granted and that we really looked at like, oh, these are the things that that happen when we're all in the same room and how can those be um, sort of like twisted and played with? So. For half of Assassins, we wanted to kind of like draw the audience and make them feel just as comfortable as possible. Because that's what theater does, right? It sort of like brings us together. And we played a lot on what like political rallies look like, what a sort of like your July 4th picnic. So it's like sit, share, be together, be of this one thing. But we really need to think about that. We need to think how powerful that can be. Um, and so that's, sort of was like the second half of assassins is how do we twist that idea and how far are you willing to go once someone has tricked you into being comfortable and sort of like what what paths will you will you be easily led down i guess
0: the actors are kind of intermingled with the audience right so
1: exactly right and i think one of the things when you look at assassins is like how do i joe Schmo connect with this person that tried to kill a president right and i think from a very basic standpoint, they seem so far away in distance because one, you're appalled by the act that they've done, right? So the violence becomes a, a boundary for you to get through. Then on top of that, the history becomes about it's like this is someone from long, long ago, like they they lived in a totally different time. So we have to care about them in some way or else the musical doesn't work, right? We have to feel linked to them. So the easiest way to do that is with a physical, like breaking that physical boundary. So if someone sits next to you, they are instantly human, right? Um, and one of the tricks I kept talking to the actors and actresses about was they, they had that act of stepping on the table and stepping off the table was a big part. Um, and, you know, without getting too sort of heady about it, in theater, if you look back at the Greeks, people entered from the audience and there's this idea of I was moving from an audience member to being on stage and I wanted to play with that idea by having them reach out to audience members and ask for help because I need help getting off of this table so I need help going back to being being one of you and you as an audience member are not going to let someone fall right because in your brain you know that this is an actor this is someone performing but part of you also is reaching out a hand to an assassin and making sure they don't trip and that instant link of like, oh, of course I will help you. Like, of course I'm going to do that sort of primes the pump for the other harder asks we're going to have of the audience sort of later in the piece and sort of like primes them to be part of the, the cult that we're trying to build and we tried to build in that piece.
0: Mm. You know, the, um, the title of this podcast, of course, is All the Hats We Wear. And I've been forever fascinated with the concept that we play different roles in our lives. We wear a lot of different hats. And I feel that we uh, kind of are forced to call upon different attributes for each of these roles. So, you know, in, in terms of like uh, parts of our identity related to acting, um, you know, do actors tap into that existing part of their personality for a role and or identity to deliver a moving performance? Or do they have to?
1: Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's somewhere in the middle. Um, so I think one of the the th- jobs of the director and the, the producing team is to find that hat for them is to see it in someone especially with young actors and actresses is they don't quite know who they are right and they're sort of figuring that out as they're developing so if we're doing our job when we're casting we sort of see a link we see something that that connects the character that they're playing to the to the performer. And we put them in that role so that they, they do have to put themselves into it, but it's a, it's a closer jump for them most of the time, right? There's some, some sort of linking connection. Um, I actually had one of the actresses came up to me and she was like, I see why you cast everyone in their role except for me. And it was sort of like, I you know, I was like, okay, well, let, tell me what you're thinking. What are you feeling about this? And she's like, I just, I'm just, you know, I don't quite understand who I am in this character and this character feels like they're searching. And I was like, okay, well let's read the character's lines. And every character line was like, why me? I'm searching right it's like oh they had to sort of like see and have that sense of like someone else helping them step back to look to see like oh I have this searching in me as this character is searching on stage right and sort of you you're, I think I always feel like my job is to see that and try to give them the sense of spark that connects them um you know which is easy in a lot of pieces, but was a little harder in assassins once again because of some of the stuff we talked about previously um I also think there is a there is a certain spark and fire that comes from working with young actors that they want to change the world, right? They want to be heard. They have something to say. They're searching for something to say. And at the core of assassins is these people who just want to be heard. They have, you know, they feel lost. They feel like the world has left them behind. They feel like they've got some sort of declaration to make and there's nobody there to listen. So I think we can all connect to that wanting to be heard, right? As having Or feeling lost. Um, that feels particularly strong, especially in that, that college-age performer.
0: In terms of getting the best performance out of the actors, I can tell you're very uh, giving and uh, encouraging positive force for the actors. And I'm even thinking of uh, Christine Taylor, who is another uh, theater person that's nearby, who, you know, I always, I always got to kick up hearing her laugh, like the loudest laugh in the audience for practice. You know, and I, and I wondered the effect of that for, for actors and go, oh, I can give a little bit more there. So how do you go about getting their uh, best performance? How how do you help them?
1: Yeah, I mean, we you have to be so vulnerable as an actor, um, and that's a hard thing to do. And it really, when you go up on stage, we're asking you to do something that is just bloody hard, right? Like singing this really difficult music um, in a role that is not you and saying these tough words. And then to be genuinely open emotionally for people is 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 like the hardest thing you can do. And I think it only takes one person to like prick you in that moment that you'll like close right up, right? And everything disappears and you need to give them the confidence and the warmth so that they feel confident being in that compassionate state because they're not gonna be performance ready day one, right? And they know that, and you know that, everybody knows that. So you don't have to tell them that, right? You can sort of go from the stuff that is good and keep working from that feeling confident in the things they're doing well, And they have to trust that you're going to get them there and they have to trust that you're not going to put them let them put something up that isn't performance worthy and you just have to keep working from the stuff that's good um the phrase that always goes through my head is like everything is perfect and in constant need of improvement and every time i look at a scene i say like okay what is perfect about this and what is in need of improvement and you sort of always have to balance back and forth between those things because they have to feel safe um you know they have to feel safe and willing to take a chance because I've seen a lot of real lame acting before, right? Because they're afraid to take a chance because they tried and at some point a director told them it was bad or an audience member booed them or whatever it was. And they're never going to take a chance again. So you have to create an opportunity in a place where failure is a good thing. Um, I always think that like in general, as a director, I'm always pushing my ideas as far out as possible and I'm going to keep pushing until I fail. And then I'll kind of step back from there, but I got to find out where the edge is. And I want the actors to kind of have that same freedom to, to push all the way out. Cause that's where they're going to find that really interesting stuff that surprises them. And then they'll sort of like step back and we, we, we make sense of what it is. Um, yeah. I want to be surprised. And if you're scared, you're never going to surprise me. Um, Cause you're not willing to make any sort of leaps. Cause you're only going to do what like, Oh, I believe the, the line says this, and this is how I've seen it done on Broadway once so I'm going to try to follow this path and, that's never interesting for me at least um and I don't think it's interesting for audience members either
0: I'm thinking of the character in assassins who uh, wore the Santa suit I, I forget the name of the character
1: oh Sam Bick yeah
0: yeah and I'm wondering if that actor because I really enjoyed her performance too with um you know is it a matter of like oh I love when you yell like that like it go go off in that moment there you know
1: so um, Siri, uh, the the actress who played that role um, is extraordinarily talented and they really needed very, very little direction for that piece. So my the way I approached it was, I gave them sort of like tent poles to shoot for. So it was like, give or take here, we need you in this emotional space. We need you in this tempo. We need you in this location. Somewhere in the middle, I need you about here. And then I sort of gave them the end. Because I think you need a balance of freedom and structure, right? Because if you have no structure, you're lost, right? You just don't know what to do. But if you have too much structure, it sort of tightens up and that character is kind of supposed to be a little drunk and a little wild. They're sort of all over the place. So they needed sort of that grounding um, and it was just a matter of giving Siri those touchstone points and then letting them figure out the space between them, because that's sort of that like transformative, how do I get from A to B and letting them work that out with themselves. There were some physical bits that we had to be like, there was that like leaning over the balcony and there was that stuff was a little bit more structured for safety reasons. Um, but in general, yeah, it's just sort of giving them the big tent poles and letting them move between them and sort of discover their their work in there.
0: Hmm. It's interesting because one of my impressions with just with her performance, because she was up with the musicians there, is that she really had a mastery of when she wasn't speaking. It seems like she could hold on to that silence after she had a couple lines, uh, like really powerfully.
1: Yeah. I mean, that character, just thinking about that character in Assassins, it's a character who delivers monologues, right? Which is like monologues in a musical is so weird. Um, and it just seems strange, but they were some of the most commanding performances, right? Um, and <clears throat> part of it is, I'm, I'm a big fan of earning silence when you're working. Um, and you do that by like kicking the tempo up everywhere else in the piece, right? Making sure that everything is flying and moving really, really quickly. Because so often, as an actor, your instinct is to just like wait all of the time. And then the silence becomes meaningless because everyone is pausing, everyone is waiting, everyone is trying to have these big big, pregnant pauses, right? So you have to earn that back. And I think part of what we tried to do was we gave Siri that space and Siri was such a talented actress that they sort of like made the most from it. So we give them the opportunity because there was no silence anywhere else in the piece or very, very rarely silence. So all of a sudden it hits you as this thing I haven't heard in a long time. and it becomes powerful in that moment, especially right in a musical, the moments without music, like those those are always sort of like a strange thing to see and to make sure you're making a statement and it's not just like, well, we didn't write a piece here. You know, it was like sort of, we're trying to say something with those and claim them back.
0: Are you a journaler?
1: I am a journaler, yes.
0: Do you find that um, has a big role in your creative process and what, what happens in your work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like journaling, So it's funny, we were talking about um, like being compassionate and being warm and understanding for actors. The journal is where I am the hardest on me. Um, Almost all of my journals start with, Kevin, you idiot, right? It's sort of like, that's where I let out all of those like frustrations because I never want to put that, I can't be like that in the rehearsal room to myself. I don't ever want to be like that towards another human being. So it very much becomes my outlet to just like yell at myself for a little while and to just let it out. Cause it's like, that was a bonehead move. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. So I get that out of my system is a big part of journaling for me. Um, and then the other is like being, like I always try to do gratitude stuff in my journaling as well too. And I think that helps me cultivate seeing that spark and those things that like bring me joy and bring me excitement because I'm trying to focus on something every day that makes me feel that spark. And it helps me sort of focus back in. Um, That that's sort of the like, Kevin the human being director thing that journaling helps with and then I have a lot of my journals are halfway between like sketches and when I'm like specifically working on a piece are some way somewhere between sketches of what I want to seem to look like Um, it's a lot of arrows and dots for me it sort of looks like a football playbook where I'm just sort of looking at like the flow of people and ideas and connecting them together is a lot of what the journal process helps me me sort of like put together as a director um I will often have a lot of ideas and it helps me to see them as a list and sort of then I can draw like okay I'm going to use this concept in this scene I'm going to use this one in this scene because I used this early I want to make sure I loop back around so I'm sort of reinforcing this theme and sometimes putting it down Um, it just gives me like just the right amount of structure to play with. Um, cause I usually don't take a ton of detailed pre-blocking before I start a scene. Cause I don't, I want to be in the moment as best I can, but once again, I need like guideposts for myself. So that's like the right amount of structure to work with.
0: What has to happen for you to be at your most creative?
1: Uh, Coffee. That's step one, (laughs) right? Um, I think to be at my most creative, um, I think I have to, I'm a big proponent of letting ideas percolate for a little while. So I sort of have to take the song. I have to take whatever inspiration I'm pulling from and put it in the back of my head and then go take a walk, take a drive, take a shower, t- do some other activity where I sort of, I'm not, it's not at the front of my mind. It's sort of at the back, sort of put it getting put together and then come back to it a day or two later. And that's when I want to have the rehearsal. And I'm a very physical person. I like to move around. So like once I'm working with the actor, I want to be sitting in the chair that they're using. I want to be touching the prop that they're using so I can, because those things sort of, they have a conversation with me whenever I use them. So I feel much more creative when I'm, I'm up and moving around and sort of like feeling things in my body. Um, I'm a big understanding attention and sort of like where, where things need to be and where my attention is, is a big part of how I work. So I'm always, my eyes will always tell me exactly what needs to happen next in a scene. So I'm always trying to make sure I'm like feeling loose in my neck and shoulders, because if something's not working, my head will just move to like the spot where it needs to be or the thing that isn't right. And then trusting that movement and sort of like physical pulling will will help me and be creative. Um, I think when an actor asks me questions, I, I really like a, a rehearsal space where the actors are questioning me. Um, and sort of like demanding more of my work, because then it forces me to think and reevaluate and build off what they're saying. So I I need a little, yeah, I need, I I don't want people to just like, say, thank you for blocking and go do it. That doesn't do anything for me, right? I sort of need that back and forth.
0: Hmm. You know, uh, I've uh, been writing a book, but it's about uh, my own process for creativity. And uh, I came up with a project management A bunch of stages for for a project that goes through. And this is what I found that works for me. But it would start with that um, spark stage, identifying the spark or that emotional connection, and then move on to the uh, gathering stage, bringing all your materials together, and then the brainstorming questioning stage, then a structure stage, and then the active, you know, getting it done, rolling up your sleeves stage, and then the uh, refining stage, which I really feel that is kind of underrated or underutilized in that the real enjoyment of just, you know, like I write drum solos. So just keep refining and refining until you, it's just sparkles. You know, the, there was a Stephen King quote about a poem that he liked. And he said, he, it was so well compacted in the structure of the poem that it was almost like he, he could hear the internal cables hum. You know, they were just so in, into it. So really, I wanted to ask you about the refining stage. Um, what are your thoughts?
1: Sure. So um, in theater, we call it taking the air out of it um, is sort of the phrase that we use. And it goes back to when we were talking about silence. Um, And the pieces will often when we're in rehearsal, we sort of expand work out as best we can. Thinking that like if you're in baseball, right, and you're trying to learn how to hit a ball you toss the ball very slowly to someone, right? It's like underhand and it's going as slow as you can so you can make contact with it. So it's the same thing with actors working together where they're kind of like tossing thoughts and emotions and lines back and forth as slowly as possible. So I know exactly where you're coming from. It gives me time to think about it and then sort of get going. But that's really boring for an audience member, right? So the refining period is sort of like, once you've got that back and forth of the space is taking all of the air out of it and making it zip along as fast as it can, right? Because you've got the hang of it. I know how to hit this pitch when it's coming at me so I can move back and forth. Um, That's sort of like from the scenes that are happening. And then I think the other half of sort of like refining something is looking at the connective tissue between moments. And this is where so I I have a pretty strong background in design as well to lights design and set design and things like that and this is something that usually happens later in the process right because you get your set on stage you've done your rehearsal but how do I get from moment a to moment b right how do I move this big thing or spin it around and this is another time where I believe that like leaning into the the problem is exciting right that's sort of how you make the piece stronger because we have these moments where we're literally transforming the set. We're transforming someone's costume. We're transforming the lights. And that is a moment when we can make a character grow and we can make a story transform and making sure that we are using all of those moments to tighten our thoughts and ideas so that every moment is directed, right? Every moment has something to say about the piece. That's really where the refinement comes for me is taking all the ideas and just like, just wrapping them up as tightly as I can, right. Really like binding them so each one has something to say, you know, the, the lights at a certain point, the light should be having a discussion with the costume and the drummer should be having a discussion with the sound part, right. And all of that fits together because the comedy is linked to the symbols is linked to the, is linked to the audience members, linked to the applause, right. And seeing all of those, that, that interconnected tissue, that's where I think the refinement is for me, um, cause you don't really get to cut stuff in theater very often right it's sort of like a weird conversation but if you're creating a new work right if you're writing a book if you're writing a drum solo you can cut some of it because it's your piece but in general a musical it's like I, it's frowned upon for me to just cut a song right or to cut some lyrics because it's you kind of have to stay exactly as they are so refining looks different i think
0: how much variation is in a good performance with an actor you know the uh they're delivering the same lines and the same, you know, around the stage, but where, how much of that leeway do you give or should they have?
1: Yeah. um, So I think for me, the consistency I want to see from an actor is in the physicality, but I believe that the emotion can be really flexible. Right. Um, I think for multiple reasons, if you've given them good blocking, you're going to put them in a physical situation That's just going to evoke a feeling. Right. And they have to be truthful to whatever that feeling is. And it might not be the same feeling every night. And I think that's good, right? I think it, once again, it gives you enough of the touchstones to like, this is how we're gonna stage this scene, but it might feel a little different every night. Um, There's safety reasons and there's sort of stuff that goes with that as well. But I just believe in like our bodies are always truthful. Um, I think sometimes we lie with our emotions as actors, which can, that's some, when a line doesn't ring, it's because they're trying to like, well, I said it like this last night, but it doesn't feel like that tonight. But it's like, if I'm standing here, it's like, I'm standing here. There's not, I can't lie to you about the way I'm standing. And the, like the more present I am in that, that kind of thing, the more flexible it can become and sort of like alive every, every night.
0: Mm. Cause I always find it interesting if, if I'm doing a, a show five times in one weekend, that there'll be a, uh, a line that you've heard a bunch of times but all of, all of a sudden you hear someone laughing, you know, from, from the cast or someone who knows the show really well. And I figured that's just something they did a little different spin on it that worked. Yeah,
1: know? and that's exciting, right? And you, you can't let it get away from you. Um, that is yeah. something that, that does happen, right? As people try to like ham up the show and take more moments. And um, as a drummer, you can probably tell this too. It's like, it's a tempo thing, right? If the tempo of the show starts to shift too dramatically because people are taking back more time than was meant to be there it falls apart right it's got to like it's got to stay in its time and that freedom and flexibility as long as it stays within the time and the tempo of the piece is usually right but yeah if the scene all of a sudden becomes goes from being a minute long to a minute and a half long it falls apart there's something about it that's just not not right anymore Um, I don't know I, I watch a lot of Aaron Sorkin and I think about that where he when he's writing speeches it's like this speech should take you two minutes and 52 seconds if it's two minutes and 53 it's wrong And there's something about that that like really stuck in the way that I look at musicals is there is like a a tempo to them that we need to be truthful to.
0: Are there any movies or TV shows that you really feel that they're doing the right thing in terms of the drama nowadays?
1: Oh, that's a big question. Um, What am I watching now? um, The big ones I think that that stand out for me are... um, I watched young Frankenstein and Monty Python on the quest for the Holy Grail, like in the same weekend in middle school, and like forever shaped little Kevin, right? It was like every joke, every bit of humor came from those things. So I think for me, I try to pull a lot of my work from like ballet is a big place that I, I borrow from because I'm once again, I'm a very movement person. Um I could watch the Nutcracker a million times, right? Like it's one of those things that there's just such like beauty and simplicity to it. I think I like in a ballet um, and it's just the Christmas season. So I have like Nutcracker on the brain, I think right now, Um, there is like a beauty to the space that they create with their thoughts and actions. Um, Words can be like very specific, right? Which I think can often make musicals very powerful but sometimes they don't leave enough space for you to have a sense of imagination. Um, I think ballets and, symphonies have this this power to let you start listening to the piece but then like float into your own world for a little while and then all of a sudden like the symphony becomes part of your background and then you like float back in and float back out and that sort of attention I think is really powerful because once again looking at a musical like Assassins you have to understand like how am I somehow connected to these Assassins and you need time to float back into yourself before you sort of like move back in so I'm often thinking about how, how ballets and symphonies are, are doing that trick um, because I think that's something we need to do in musical theater more often. And that, that's one of the big things I think that separates it from a play where the play is <clears throat> so specific and text-based that it's really trying to like hammer on a very small nail that it just wants to sort of like hit this one idea where the musical can sometimes be a little wider um, which doesn't mean it's less effective. It's just like a different way of approaching.
0: Do you have a website or somewhere people, if they wanted to see more of what you do, they could go to that or?
1: Um, They don't, but just show up at Clark at any time. And there's probably some sort of piece of theater that I'm working on. Um, I've I've got that, um, I've got a national tour that I'm production managing right now that's sort of all over the place. So we've got a bunch of work going there. Um, But yeah, just anything at Clark is probably the best way to sort of get a look at what I'm working on.
0: Great. My final question, Kevin, and this was amazing. Uh, what's one action our listeners can take to be more creative, more fulfilled?
1: So the, the activity that really works well for me is to think about, it's like second or third grade. And to think of the first time someone told you you're too old for that. Because um, there's some toy, there was some pe- like fascination. There was something that you loved, that you loved for the sake of loving it, right? That, you, that Nobody told you this was cool for whatever little you just went like, ah, that thing. And then someone made you stop loving it. And that is like, for me, is like the core of all the good sparkles, all of the good things that like make me excited about life. I think back to those moments. Um, and I've been very lucky to like to just have creative work in my my whole life. So people very often don't tell me that I, I'm too old for that, right? I get to like play make believe all day. But that's it. Like If you can find, if you can think about little you, and like, think about whatever you were into. And when someone said you were too old for that, that's like, that's a moment where all of a sudden you stop being creative and you just had to become this like real world adult and you like crush your little, you put your little fire out. Um, and I think you can sort of like start it again.
0: Well, you should write a book on that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's my idea. Yeah, that's, that's how I'll save the world, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, this was really fascinating. Uh, I think the audience is really going to, uh, has a whole bunch of things to check out there. And uh, for creativity and just your approach to everything is really enlightening.
1: Thank you very much. It's a blast. Um, I'm, I'm, I was, it was a lot of fun to come and talk with you.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Hopefully, you've learned something to help you become more joyful, productive, and fulfilled. So let's keep that momentum going. Text or email me to schedule a free consult call to get you moving in the right direction. By the end of this session, you'll have a complete list of all the hats that you wear, and we'll probably uncover a few important hats that you should be wearing, but you're not. You're meant to do great things. Contact me to take the first step. Text 774-230-3928 or email me scottsnow1234 at gmail.com. Do it now.